I wish I could say it was by some very clever design and well thought out plan that our Advent season and Christmas services have been bracketed by our journey through John's Gospel with the, the cross before Christmas and resurrection immediately afterwards. But in this this Sunday, which really doesn't know what to do with itself, because Christmas has gone and uh, New Year has not yet come, we're going to think together of Jesus' victory over death. Gareth's going to come and read to us from John's Gospel and the 20th chapter. John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. 
Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this, his word. Thank you, choir. Let's join together again in prayer. Let's pray. Father God, in these moments, as we turn to consider your word, we ask your help, your Holy Spirit, to enlighten us, to open our minds to receive your truth, to release our lips and our lives, to declare it to the world, to guide us in the way that you would want us to walk. To your honor and glory, we pray. Amen. Some years ago now, I was reading a collection of uh, recollections from a father, and he was thinking about those days that pass all too quickly, watching your children grow up before your very eyes. And, and out of all the tangled memories and thoughts that he had, he, he remembered one particular morning when his young son ran and jumped on top of his bed and woke him and said, Dad. This is the world's best day. And guess what? We're in it. I wonder, do you ever have the experience of the thrill of a new day? Do you wake in each morning and say, what a great privilege it is to have life in this day? Or maybe the dawn brings to you a sense of renewed weariness. You have to struggle out of bed and you have to drag yourself from day to day, hoping that eventually, maybe someday soon, a good day will come to make all those weary days bearable. Here is the good news of God's word to you. Today is the world's best day and guess what? You are are in it. 
And the reason I can say this is because of this portion of scripture that Gareth read for us this morning. On the cross, Jesus declared, it is finished. And it is. All the death dread was buried with him. So that not all who live and believe in him will never die. Everything has changed because of the cross. John 20 begins, now on the first day of the week. And those words could have been casually written by John, the gospel writer, just as an introduction to a new theme, a new topic. But that's not John's style. That's not how he does things. Every word he pens is dripping with meaning. And it's, it's more than, than likely that he's not just remarking on the fact that a week has gone, seven days have passed. No, this is something new. It's very interesting. Lots of people, they really have no time for the Bible, but they're, they're very committed to the biblical teaching of a weekend, of a new week. And we understand from the book of Genesis that God labored and then rested. And he invites us to have that same pattern, to labor and then rest. And that labor without rest is self-destructive as we would work ourselves to death. And rest without labor is also self-destructive because it renders our lives purposeless. Now John loves the number seven and he uses it often in his gospel account. And in reminding us that this is a new week, he is declaring that, that the period of creation has passed. As a new week enters, so a new creation begins. It's the first day of a new week and it's the first day of a new world. This is the post-resurrection world. You know people sometimes say, you know, this is the first day of the rest of your life. But this particular first day was not the rest of a human lifespan, but the beginning of an eternal life. Nothing would ever be the same again because of this great hinge of history. It's the first day of a new week and Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. Probably she was accompanied by a group of other women from the circle of disciples and she comes, as we realize, burdened with grief at this deep sense of loss. She's come to the tomb to mourn. And these women come and they have this great concern that how can they move the great stone that covered the doorway to the tomb? And she's even more disturbed and she discovers that that problem has been resolved. The tomb is open, the stone is rolled away. And she is in her heart disturbed because the tomb itself is disturbed. The burial site is disturbed. Mary sees these things and so begins a great deal of running. She goes and gives the message to Peter. And Peter and we presume John, he calls himself uh, the one whom Jesus loved. His little pseudonym, the beloved disciple. Uh, And they come and we have this lovely eyewitness detail. Why else? Would someone have said that John, the younger disciple, outran, outpaced the older, arriving first? And as the two men arrive at the tomb, they they behave in character. 
The first John to arrive tentatively examines the scene from a safe distance. He's restrained. He's reflective. But Peter, upon his arrival, he marches straight into the tomb. There's no hesitation, no thought of the consequences. He is bold and brazen. The evidence is before them. Everything is neat and orderly. Not as you would assume if grave robbers had been at work. They would not have taken time to to fold the grave clothes. Even if the religious authorities had intervened in some way to remove the body of Jesus for their own purposes, why would anybody take the corpse but leave the grave clothes? Why would anybody trouble themselves to unravel them and to fold them neatly, leaving them behind? No, that the, the, there could be no accident or, or no robbery or, or no uh, political machination. John adds his own eyewitness reflection, verses 8 to 10. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first, just rubs it into Peter to let him know, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their own homes, verse 10. Why did they go back? Well, we can only speculate why they would have so quickly left the scene. Perhaps the the stark silhouette of the cross, uh, not so far removed from them, was enough to, to send a chill into their souls. What had happened to their master might happen to them. The cross and the grave were in close proximity. Perhaps they thought that crime had been committed, their presence at the scene of a crime would maybe lead to bad uh, consequences. They might be held accountable for the disappearance of the body of Jesus. They, they leave for whatever reason. And they go back to their home. And for whatever it was that caused them to do this, as John records for us, seeing did not lead to true believing. He believed, but yet he did not truly believe. What sort of belief is it that analyzes the situation, arrives at the right conclusion, and then fails to act upon it? John's belief is the faith of the flesh. You see, Jesus had done so much before them. He had taught them with amazing wisdom and power. But when the ultimate miracle is enacted, when Jesus defeats death, rises from the grave, the disciples did not truly believe what they see before their eyes. They cannot grasp the truth because in this case, seeing is not believing. Even when Mary later proclaims the gospel to her fellow Jesus followers, testifying that she had seen the Lord. They rest not on faith, but on their feelings. They trust what they have seen, not in what Mary has seen. And if you look down through this chapter, you'll see the words saw and see and seen are are used repeatedly. Because the eyes are speaking a message that the heart is not receiving. And, And that's a feeling we see back in the Garden of Eden. Remember how that forbidden fruit, it, it, it looks good to eat. It was visually appealing and in the minds of our first parents, it really didn't much matter what God had said to them. It looked good. Their eyes held sway. 
They were going to eat it. But the sensual triumphed over the spiritual. What Eve saw with her eyes overruled what she knew in her heart. And the consequence was sin. And that same tide sweeps over the Easter season. Jesus had died on the cross. John, the gospel writer, had seen it with his own eyes. He he had watched as that spear was pressed into Jesus' side and blood and water flowed out. And it doesn't really much matter what Jesus had said about death and defeating it and rising again. The visual quelled the spiritual and they resolutely considered Jesus to be dead. Do we, like those disciples on that early Easter morning, fail to see the truth that is in God's promises? Do we allow facts to crush faith from our hearts? Jesus said that he would lay down his life, but he had the power to take it up again, and he would do so. But it looked so very like he was dead. And that was enough seemingly to irreversibly sadden the disciples. And we understand that in life, great setbacks come. Maybe it's a bank statement. Maybe it's a a medical diagnosis. Maybe it's a relationship breakdown. For whatever reasons, this, this crushing darkness rushes into our life. And we are realists. We submit to the evidence. We see what we see and we realize that there is no way out, no hope, no help. We can't see beyond the essential to the spiritual. That, that God even in this could be at work for a greater, more glorious purpose. John declares that he believed and yet didn't act upon that belief. For when our belief is based purely on what we see, that's insufficient. Our our belief must be spiritually fueled, spiritually enabled. Paul explains it this way in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 7 to 12, he writes, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit that is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Paul is quoting from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 64, claiming that it's not the seeing of the eye that brings enlightenment. We can't understand what God is doing in this world just by what we see. It it requires the receiving of the Spirit of God. That that enables us to grasp, to understand, to receive what is beyond our imagining. God's great 
gifts of grace to us. Looking ahead down the chapter to verse 22, it says that Jesus met with his fearful disciples and he breathed the Holy Spirit upon them. Receive the Holy Spirit, he said. And as they receive the Lord in the, in the person of the Holy Spirit, that enables these first disciples and us to make sense with what we see before us. It's the receiving of the Holy Spirit that enables us to understand God's word and to apply it to our lives and to establish a saving faith within the heart of an individual. Again, no, John tells us, as yet, they did not understand the scripture. They didn't believe because they couldn't believe. Their eyes were blinded, their ears were deafened, their hearts were hardened. But that was the first day of a new week. This was the dawning of a new creation, a recreation, a glorious day when true faith would come to them. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping. Mary, the one who had been forgiven much, loved much. And she had such an intensity, a longing for Jesus that was unmatched by the other disciples that she would not be put off. She would not go home. So great is her heartbreak that even when she encounters two angels, she's left undisturbed by them. There are not too many times when people encounter angels without breaking down into great fear, but not Mary. And these angels are sympathetic as they always show themselves to be. They are uh, understanding of our needs. They rejoice over a sinner who repents. They come alongside those who quake in fear and offer compassion and tell them not to worry. And they speak here to Mary and, and ask, saying, Woman, why are you weeping? Verse 13. There's a certain angelic logic being applied here. Why would, would Mary be weeping? She should weep if there was a body still in the tomb, but now there is an empty tomb. She should rejoice and not weep. Jesus is not in the grave. Tears of sorrow are the most inappropriate human expression. And John is the only gospel writer who doesn't quote the angels as being the first to announce the resurrection news. Mark, for example, says, Mark 16, 6. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Nonetheless, although there is no announcement in John's gospel, the message is clear. And the message of the angels to Mary is clear. Today's the world's best day, Mary, and guess what? You're in it. I wonder, have you ever had a, a front row seat in a, in a beautiful surprise? Maybe someone hasn't seen a family member for a long time. They've been away and, and you know that they're coming home but they're sneaking in to surprise the family member and you're aware but no one else is and, and you watch with expectation to see the delight in the unsuspecting uh, recipient of, of this good news. These videos are often posted on YouTube, particularly of American servicemen who come back and surprise their families and, and you see the delight in the wife and the, the children's faces. And the angels here, they, they know what's happening. They know what's about to unfold. They know that, that as they talk to Mary, Jesus is standing right behind her. And what did they smile? They knew that understanding would come to Mary. 
but it would come slowly. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Why did Mary not recognize Jesus? Was it the tears in her eyes? Was his form changed or transformed or disguised in some way to inhibit her recognition? Was she kept as God can keep people from recognizing? Her view of what was unfolding was too restricted. She's still searching for a body. She's not seeking a victorious Lord. And even when she confronts him, stares him in the face, it's not enough to convince her. And then we read, verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. Mary, one word, the uttering of one word, Mary's name, transformed everything. All of a sudden, Jesus, who had been absent to Mary, who was dead to Mary, as he speaks her name, reveals himself to be risen, alive before her. He was there. And you know how back in, in John chapter 10, Jesus used that imagery of the good shepherd, John 10, 3 and 4. Jesus said, the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Mary believes in Jesus, risen and we're not told what happens. Seems that she instigates some kind of rugby tackle on him. She's found Jesus having lost him. And now she's not going to let him go. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Jesus is risen. He has made himself known. And there's so much that could be said, but we're going to draw to a close there. But three little points of application. You know, Christians sometimes feel that it's up to them, up to us, to hold on to Jesus. You think our relationship with him is entirely dependent on what we do. What foolishness. We must trust that Jesus holds us. And have confidence that, that this resurrected Lord will uh, never let us go. And he releases us and sends us to the make his, resurrected, his resurrection victory known to the very ends of the earth. Mary lets go of Jesus and at his command goes and shares the good news that he has defeated death. She goes and declares the good news of the gospel. We're not to spend our time trying to hold on to Jesus, but released by him, knowing that he constantly and will unendingly hold us in his hands, go into the world with this message that he's alive and death is defeated. And this new creation, that's initiated by the resurrection of Jesus, means that there's a new relationship that we can now have with the one who is our Father. Because of the self-giving act of Jesus Christ, we can know God as our Father. 
and know that his love and compassion, Scott, was helping us in our Advent services. Think about this everlasting Father, his constant compassion and care. We can come to a God with a tender heart, knowing that he will receive us and accept us. And we must understand that because of the resurrection, we move from beyond just seeing, beyond the essential to the spiritual. It's the spiritual that that controls us. We live by faith and not by sight. And we didn't take time to go into the the story of Thomas who declares that he would not believe until he had his senses involved, until his touch was involved, until he saw the wounds of nails and spear. And Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Controlled by the spiritual. Living by faith and not by sight. And God is at work in hearts and lives by his spirit to change, transform our circumstances. So that those who feel the despair of life are brought into the delight of God's promises. They can confidently trust in him for what is yet before them. We can say that today is the world's best day and we are in it because Jesus is alive. He has risen and he wants to meet with us. He wants to journey with us in life. He wants to equip and empower us to serve him and to make him known to this world in need. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and we thank you that Jesus is risen. And even in the Christmas season when our focus is so much on the birth of the Savior. We're reminded that he was born to die. And he died to rise again. To defeat death and to offer to us the hope of life that lasts forever. He came to make everything new. And all the brokenness and all the despair that so often dominates our lives would be swept away in his amazing love. Our Father and our God, we pray that we would know the truth. That by your Spirit you would imprint it on our hearts. That these words would not just be a a familiar story. But they would be the very foundation of, of our lives. That because the grave is empty. Because Jesus has risen. Our hope is to be with you forever. And nothing, no one, no power on earth or in heaven can separate us from your great love. So with confidence, with true spirit-fueled faith, may we move out into the world to share this great good news that Jesus is alive and lives forevermore. And all who believe in him, who trust in him, will never die but live forever. May that eager anticipation be our precious possession today and always. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.